Um, welcome to you all. I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy. And it is my great pleasure to, uh, to be hosting today a, a colleague uh, from the ranks of Inkstained Wretched now. <coughs> she has earned her spurs the hard way uh, and has uh, also, of course, a graduate of the Kennedy School of Government. And uh, Joe McCarthy, of course, was the uh, academic dean or the, uh, the dean of students. Or something. Uh, <laughs> part of the custodial and, uh, program. It's, uh, it's like it's it's. It is a wonderful to see a familiar face back, especially since Missy uh, was uh, really in great danger when she went into Tripoli for Reuters, <laughs> found herself in a situation in which the. Qaddafi government, which had been the sponsor effectively of bringing the journalists in, uh, decided, as you said to me just a moment ago, that you were all calling in airstrikes yep. and uh, became very hostile. And she had the the, doubt, the dubious pleasure of uh, having, uh, were you on the, your sat phone at the time? Uh, it was my, again, my satellite device, so it was about, it was, I was using it about four feet away. When a sniper shot. And uh, it sort of went up in smoke. So you know, um, she's she is a now uh, someone who has been in a in a, a situation in which you have the very novel experience of having someone trying to kill you, which is a, which is journalists don't necessarily uh, soldiers have that in combat, but journalists not necessarily, and it's uh, it's a sobering thing to have someone consciously trying to kill you. It comes as a great surprise. <laughs> In any event, Missy, we are very glad to have you Thank here. Thank you very much. And um, the floor is yours. Well, first of all, I'd like to say um, I'm so happy to be back here at the Kennedy School, and especially the, the, the Shorenstein Center. Thank you to Alex and the ED for hosting me. And it's uh, wonderful to see so many uh, familiar faces. Um, I'd just like to introduce myself. I uh, work for Thomson Reuters, and I currently cover the Pentagon uh, mostly focusing on Afghanistan and Pakistan, but generally uh, the U.S. military. Uh, I was based in Iraq for about two years um, prior to coming back to Washington, and I, I've also reported from Yemen, Libya, uh, Mexico, Argentina, Egypt, Peru, Sudan, Lebanon. Uh, I think I mentioned that one. Um, I got an MPP from the Kennedy School in 2005. And one of the reasons why um, I feel so fortunate to have done so was that um, I had the opportunity to um, be affiliated a little bit with the Shorenstein Center as a research assistant to um, several of the fellows. Um, and I was able to begin studying Arabic while I was here, um, which has been very valuable um, in my um, uh, professional life since then. And I also sort of took a geographic shift from, I had been a Latin America person before coming to the Kennedy School and then uh, focused on the GWAT countries, as they would be called um, in the Bush administration. Um, so I'm going to make a, just a very few uh, brief introductory comments about media coverage of the Libya conflict and talk about my personal experience, which is somewhat unique um, uh, from the other reporters who have been there since February, in that I was in Tripoli the whole time, and Gaddafi controlled uh, Libya was a very different um, uh, place than Benghazi or the area in, areas in the Western Mountains where some of my colleagues were reporting. Very much an anachronism. Um, Gaddafi had been in power for 41 years, as you know. 
um, and also because we were held against our will for um, about four days at the end um, of the Gaddafi regime. So I think that the first thing to mention here is, as, as, a, as a way of background, is that prior to the outbreak of the conflict in February, the global media um, had only very superficial knowledge of Libya, um, of its leadership, of the sort of societal makeup. Um, most of that is um, because of Western media, media organizations were mostly prohibited from having or disinterested in having full-time correspondents in Libya. We would have, for example, Reuters had a stringer, um, which would be a part-time correspondent, someone who's heavily vetted by the regime. Uh, occasionally, a U.S. newspaper, for example, would send in a correspondent for a couple of days if there was a big newspaper, a big news event, um, and then they would leave. And as far as I know, there were only two Western news organizations that had full-fledged reporters stationed in Tripoli before the conflict, and that was the BBC and the AFP. And all of this is important because it really contributed to um, a paucity of understanding about what Libya under Gaddafi really was um, beyond the sort of top tier of leaders. I don't think we understood the society very well. I don't think we understood um, the political leadership in any sort of great depth. And that really hobbled our ability to report the conflict in the initial phases. And we saw that there was a lot of misinformation, especially from Benghazi and from Tripoli, in the initial days of the conflict. And that had real implications for the decisions that were made even at the United Nations. Um, so I'm going to walk you through how Reuters covered the Libya conflict in the sort of nuts and bolts. And I think that's um, perhaps useful because it, it uh, varied so differently than what the media does in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, where it's become a much more structured or binary conflict because of the presence of you know, the major military player, the US, ISAF. Um, it's a much more fluid situation in a place like Libya. Um, so Reuters is a pretty large organization with a very robust Middle East presence. And we had um, the ability to staff the conflict in a way that most people couldn't. It's very expensive to send media teams into war zones. Um, we had a big photo and TV operation. Um, we had teams of reporters, cameramen, and photographers uh, sent to Benghazi, to Tripoli, to Misrata, and to uh, the Western Mountains for much of the conflict. Um, the teams that were along the front lines, and that would be mostly Misrata, and the, the Western Mountains, and to a certain extent, the area between Sirte and Benghazi for part of the conflict were accompanied by um, private security employed by Reuters. And you all know who these people are. They're former uh, UK uh, soldiers or police. And their job is to uh, prevent um, the journalists from getting themselves into any sort of horrible trouble um, to the, to the degree that they can actually stop us. Um, the, way that, the way that it would work normally, just to give you an idea, on the front lines on a daily basis, these reporters were operating on the rebel side of the front lines. We weren't we were, were not permitted to go on the on the government side. So they would sort of wake up in the morning, call the rebel commander, ask them what their plans were. Uh, the rebel commanders had a very strange uh, penchant for announcing their su surprise attacks to the media before they did them. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then we would follow literally the rebel trucks as they tried to push forward. Um, but journalists would generally, generally hang back, back a little bit, 
from the positions that the rebels were taking as they launched their artillery or whatever. Um, and journalists, of course, were in their flak jackets and their helmets. Um, and you know, generally speaking, we felt like this was an acceptable risk. Um, it became much more complicated um, in scenarios in which there wasn't really a clear front line or the front line wasn't static um, or journalists, as in the case of Misrata or in the city of Zawiya later on, the whole city was a front line. Um, and in those kind of situations, you had grad rockets um, being you know, slammed into residential buildings. Uh, there was an unfortunate case, which I'm sure you all heard about in April, of two Western photographers being killed in Misrata, um, being hit by artillery. And uh, so those are the perils that, that those reporters were, were facing. From an editorial perspective, um, the way that we wrote those stories, you know, you're out on the front lines, it's very isolated, you can't really sit down and uh, you know, email a story to your editor. Um, people would just use their, cell, their satellite phones to call in information to an editor, usually in Tunis or Rabat, and that person would cobble together information <coughs> from the various correspondents and come up with a cohesive narr narrative. And that's what we call a trunk story. And that's, that's the way all the wire services do things. And I think, to be honest, it's the way that uh, most of the newspapers do, do things now, too. Um, so the situation was very different in um, Gaddafi-controlled Libya, which is where I was um, starting in mid-July. Uh, Tripoli is a city that, in some ways, is suspended in time. Gaddafi took over in 1969. And in, in a lot of ways, the sort of outlook mentality hasn't changed much since then. Um, uh, reporters operating in Gaddafi-controlled Libya were required to abide by a very restrictive set of, of rules um, in exchange for access, security, transport. We were not allowed to operate independently. That was prohibited. Um, we. As, as a group, we stayed in a five-star hotel called the Rixos. And uh, it was a hotel where many of the senior government officials also stayed um, because it was the only place, first of all, in, uh, in Tripoli that had the internet. Gaddafi had shut down the internet after the conflict started. Um, and it was the only place that these senior officials, many of them whom NATO would have con considered fair targets, um, could be guaranteed that they wouldn't be bombed. NATO because we were there. Uh, the state um, television um, was broadcasting from the basement of the hotel after its studios were bombed. Um, so we lived side by side with the government minders and many of these government officials. Um, and as I said, we were prohibited from going out on a daily basis to conduct interviews and do the kind of things that we would do in a normal situation. Um, the government would bus us daily to uh, very choreographed pro-Qaddafi rallies. Um, and you'd have hundreds or thousands of people <laughs> cheering and waving Gaddafi flags, their, their faces painted green, their babies' faces painted green. Um, and the difficult thing, of course, was to figure out whether these people were there because they truly loved Gaddafi and would die for him, or whether they were compelled um, financially or threatened to go out and make this kind of show. And uh, it was an almost impossible thing to do. Um, we, uh, especially when we were interviewing people right next to government minders who coached 
the people we were interviewing and often corrected them if they said something that didn't seem um, as enthusiastically pro-Qaddafi as it might. Um, not surprisingly, most people we talked to professed utter love for Gaddafi and utter hatred for the rebels who, um, in Arabic, uh, were called rats. Um, occasionally, we did get candid answers, sort of accident accidentally, from people. Um, when we did, we often didn't use them for fear of getting the person we were talking to killed um, or arrested. The one time that I personally interviewed a Libyan who um, sort of gave me a long, critical, candid answer about how he saw the rebels versus the government, um, I decided right away that I would not use it, the material. It just wasn't worth the risk of getting this person arrested. But what I found out later was that a random Libyan who had been in the sweet shop where I was interviewing this man had called the state security services and it triggered a minor, minor security incident that, uh, that rose to the, to the level of Abdullah Sanusi who was the feared Libyan intelligence boss. Uh, and uh, the minder who I was with ended up being uh, fleeing, essentially, for his life. Um, so, um, it was, for me, it was the first time I'd ever worked extensively in a true police state. And I have to say, this is a very eye-opening experience. After the government fell, we found proof that the government had been uh, surveilling uh, foreign reporters' emails. I'm, I'm certain they also surveilled our, our, our phones. If we had a, a confidential phone, uh, issue to discuss with an editor, we would use our sat phones, um, which couldn't be surveilled. Um, we generally wanted to talk to local opposition in Tripoli, um, but we were often afraid to approach potential sources, knowing that we were endangering their lives by doing so. Um, in the few occasions where um, Western reporters were able to arrange meetings with members of the Tripoli upper underground, uh, they were expelled um, immediately from Tripoli. Um, the government called us spies um, on television to our faces. Um, they saw us as agents of Western governments. Um, as I said, they really did believe that we were calling in airstrikes to NATO with our sat phones. Um, after one particular incident in the beginning of the war with Reporters were taken out to an area near the front line. Reporters, because their reporters are on their phone to, uh, with their editors, several hours later, that area was bombed. And this led the government to believe that we had, you know, we were on the phone with Anders Fogg Rasmussen giving them coordinates, which obviously wasn't the case. Um, um, and as I told Alex, there were signs all over Tripoli warning residents not to trust foreign media. Um, there was one very influential uh, talk show host, who was like the Oprah Winfrey of Libya, um, encouraging Libyans on his program to attack journalists if they saw them. Um, I personally was called scum on Libyan state television after I wrote an article about a NATO airstrike, in which I acknowledged that NATO could kill civilians, but not with enough fervor to, to satisfy the government. So overall, it was a very frustrating um, experience professionally because what we really aspired to do everyone who I was there with and I was um, for the period that I was there there were about 30 foreign reporters and uh, you know to, to a man we all wanted to be able to provide a nuanced uh, depiction of Libyan society you know really possibly even tell the story of the Libyans who actually do support Gaddafi um, give an idea of the hardships that those people were facing because of um, 
the blockade and the sanctions, um, it, it was virtually impossible for us to do so, especially after we had been fed so much misinformation, you tend to, to disbelieve most of the things you heard. Um, but we did do our best, and I think still it's important to be there um, to, in any way possible, challenge the narrative coming from the Gaddafi regime. So I'm going to quickly walk you through the, the final days of, of what happened um, as the Gaddafi uh, regime crumbled. Um, and it, it's sort of a strange thing for me to talk about because we, instead of telling the story, we became part of the story. Um, and it's not something that I personally um, had ever sought out. Um, and it was something we couldn't really do anything about. Um, but there we were, um, uh, being interviewed um, uh, occasionally by colleagues, um, rather than going out and doing what we wanted to do, which was covering the city as it fell. Um, so for months, the rebels had been encroaching on Tripoli. Tripoli was a big, the big prize. They wanted to get um, to Tripoli and topple Gaddafi. Um, there had been a lot of sort of start and stop progress. The rebels' military abilities um, were not uh, very strong. Um, however, with a lot of NATO help, they reached this, the city of Zawi on August 13th. And Zawi was very important because it's just west of Tripoli and it's on the coast. And when the rebels ca captured Zawiya, it meant that suddenly Tripoli was totally isolated. Um, it no longer had access to Tunisia uh, on this coastal highway that went from Tripoli to Tunisia. Um, and so for the next week, uh, we, along with all other Tripoli residents, were totally isolated. And so as a journalist, we you know, had sort of started trying to activate our evacuation plans, thought about how we, we might get out if we needed to. Um, we talked to um, a, the few remaining diplomats that were um, still left in Tripoli. There weren't very many of them. There was one Western embassy that was still open, and that was the Hungarian embassy. They were the proxy contact for the EU and for the United States. But they had two people and a tiny villa, so they weren't very um, their abilities to help anybody were minimal. Um, we talked to the UN. They did not have a uh, permanent presence in Tripoli at that time. Um, they did have a humanitarian mission that would come and go, but then when the fighting got quite heavy, they left. Um, there was a uh, boat that was going to come from Malta to evacuate third country nationals, and some journalists decided that they wanted to get on that boat. Um, and unfortunately, the boat was never able to dock as it entered Tripoli Harbor, it was shot at by the rebels and by the Gaddafi, uh, the government forces. <laughs> so, so we withdrew. Um, so uh, essentially, we just bided our time. Um, and it was, it was as I was just telling um, Alex, it was sort of an ine inevitable situation, but it was still surprising when it happened. Um, on Saturday, August 21st, the rebels rolled into Tripoli, and there was massive fighting all over the city. There were airstrikes from NATO. There was major artillery battles um, between the rebels and the Gaddafi forces. There was sniper fire, small arms fire, everything. Um, the next morning, uh, we woke up, and the government minders, who had been our constant companions and frequent ad adversaries, were gone. Um, the hotel staff was gone. Uh, Klaus, who was the German manager of the hotel, warned us that there had been a threat, um, that the hotel was going to be attacked. He advised us to leave, and then he left himself. Um, we unfortunately were unable to leave. Uh, we were prohibited from leaving by a group of Gaddafi gunmen. And basically, these guys were volunteers. Um, at the beginning of the conflict, Gaddafi had 
um, distributed arms to every Libyan man in you know, Gaddafi-controlled territory, um, and many women also. And so these were the, the very typical um, young guys. They're 18, 19, 20, 20 years old. They had been told, um, by no means let these journalists leave. Uh, they were headed by one older man who was quite a nice man, but they really believed um, that they were protecting our safety against the rebels who um, would rape women, uh, steal, plunder, destroy their society. I mean, for them it was a very clear good versus evil scenario, and they were on the side of good. Um, that said, it was a very tense situation, especially because the, these men were not trained soldiers. They were very stressed out. They didn't know what was going to happen. They had families who they couldn't talk to. Um, it was utter chaos throughout the whole city. Um, there were snipers positioned on the roof of the hotel. Uh, intermittently, there was heavy artillery fire around the hotel. There was a big RPG battle right at the um, door of the hotel that left a number of corpses on the driveway. Um, some sniper fire within within the hotel as well. Um, we didn't have water or power for part of the time, so we went down into the basement of the hotel and raided the pantries. Um, <laughs> we um, filled up buckets of water from the this luxury hotel's Turkish Turkish baths um, to be able to flush the toilets. Uh, the cell phone service had been cut off. And we unfortunately couldn't go outside to use our satellite phones because you have to be have a quite clear signal for them to work. We couldn't go outside to use the sat phones because of the snipers. Um, and as I mentioned, I at one point um, desperate to use the internet and file something and be productive. Um, I, I asked my very brave colleague from South Africa, Leon, to set up uh, my began my satellite device outside. So he crawled out there. Um, on the roof in his flak jacket um, and set it up for me and I was um, thrilled and I went out on the balcony of my, ho of my uh, room with my uh, helmet and flak jacket on and was typing emails and I had actually just gotten an email from my brother who was telling me that he was had just gotten engaged <laughs> and so I was responding to him and then um, a sniper shot my vegan about four feet away, and so I just ran out of the room. It was like a huge bang, and uh, we we didn't stick around to see what what happened. Um, so it was it was very tense. We didn't sleep in our rooms. Um, we set up a safe room, um, a windowless safe room, um, and we spent a lot of time wearing our personal pr protective equipment. Um, we set up. We uh, basically took sheets and wrote press on it and hung them from the, the rafters. Um, our fear was that the rebels would try to storm the hotel to liberate us, as they told us they would. Um, we tried to, um, to put them off. I mean, that really was the big fear, that it was that the fight would, would enter the hotel rather than remaining um, outside of the hotel. I mean, at this point, most of Tripoli had fallen to Gaddafi, and, and we only had tidbits of information. And after, Babel Azizia, which was Gaddafi's headquarters, fell. Um, they, this area that we were in, the Riksa, so was one of probably two areas of the city that were still held by Gaddafi. And that, of course, made it sort of, the, the stakes were higher, um, and we really didn't know what ha would happen. Um, at the same time, we were proving our utility, our continued, our continued utility to the regime. Um, at one point, the NTC, the rebel leadership, announced that Saif al-Islam had been killed, and Saif al-Islam is Gaddafi's son, his Arab parent. 
Um, and had he actually died at that point, it would have been a huge blow um, to the Gaddafi camp as they were trying to hold on to the city. So a few hours after that um, news came out, that report came out, um, Saif al-Islam showed up in the middle of the night at our hotel. There was no power at that point, so we had sort of this surreal candle-lit um, <laughs> press conference. And uh, you know, we um, then all frantically leaned out of our windows to call in the news to the degree that we could. Um, and I think, you know, in some ways, it probably wasn't the best decision because we were um, reinforcing a view that they should keep us there. But at the same time, it's, the, it's sort of in our genes as reporters to to get the news out. So that's what we did. Um, so ultimately, on the fourth day, uh, there was a group of Arab journalists among us, and they were able to um, speak at length with the few remaining guards um, and convince them, really, that the game was up, that the city had flipped, um, that they needed to go take care of their families. And it was a very dramatic process of trying to sort of um, just show what was obvious to everyone else um, that Gaddafi's days were over um, to these people who were really true believers. They actually supported and loved Gaddafi. They really feared for what the rebel future would bring. They put down their arms. They allowed the International Committee of the Red Cross to come in. Um, they showed up with about uh, five cars. We grabbed what we could, and we were out in about a minute and a half. Um, uh, what was really dramatic uh, for me was after being trapped for um, this period, seeing how much the city had changed in a relatively short period of time, in about five days. It, it went from a trip, it went from being a city where there was anti-rebel, um, pro-Qaddafi, uh, graffiti everywhere, Gaddafi flags, very orderly, mm -hmm. but very tense, to people uh, singing in the streets, dancing, young men wearing rebel t-shirts, manning informal checkpoints. It was very festive. And uh, I was sitting next to one of our uh, uh, guards, as it turned out, as we drove through this the streets of Tripoli, and you could just see this man. His man was probably in his mid-40s. He had spent his whole life under Gaddafi. Um, you could just see his heartbreak as he saw, you know, the new the new Libya in some ways wasn't for everyone. Um, so finally, I'd like to say a few things about the overall media coverage of the Libya conflict. Um, I obviously think it was very important that we were there. Um, think about what we don't know about what's happening in Syria because reporters haven't been allowed to be there. Um, think about how much easier it is for the world to overlook what's happening in Yemen because there's not a robust Western media presence there. So of course I think it's worthwhile to be there. It's expensive, it's dangerous, I still think we need to be there. Um, I think the, the Western media did a pretty good job of depicting the overall tenor of the conflict and the major military developments. I think we did less well in fleshing out who the rebels were um, in terms of their political and ideological agenda and asking hard questions about their ability to steer the country um, in a good direction. And I think that's really important because there has been a track record, as you all know, of the West cozying up to opposition players simply because they have the same enemies as we do. And we saw what happened in Iraq. Um, I feel like even though we tried very hard, 
the Western media failed to adequate, adequately depict the fact that many Libyans, and nobody can say how many, there were no opinion polls, um, truly supported and continue to truly support Gaddafi for various reasons. Some of them are opportunistic, um, some of them are ideological, um, some of them because their worldview has been shaped by what they've been hearing um, from the Gaddafi propaganda machines since they were children. But you know, even now we're seeing continued fighting from pro from pro Gaddafi diehards in Libya, and you know maybe that'll go away in a couple of weeks, but maybe it won't. And I think if we um, embrace an idea that it was a society that was 100% oppressed and 100% opposed to this man, um, we really impoverish the debate about what's coming next in Libya. Um, Finally, I think that the global media failed to sufficiently draw attention to the fact that the NATO um, operation above and in Libya far exceeded the United Nations Security Council resolution um, in terms of the targets that they selected and what they um, what they actually did um, above and beyond the, the air embargo. And, and I you know, didn't agree with virtually anything that the Gaddafi regime said, but I think in this one point, um, they were, were very right. There just didn't seem to be very much, nobody in the West seemed to be very bothered that um, the mandate talked about protecting civilians, um, but in many ways we were backing one side of a civil war. Um, so I think I'll just leave it there and open it up to questions. <coughs> Thank you. Thanks, Mickey. I would like to ask a couple, and then uh, sure. I'm going to allow students to have the first crack, and then we'll open it up to everyone. Um, <coughs> would you describe the process by which you personally found yourself in this situation? Did Reuters come to you? Did you go to Reuters? Uh, did they give you training in uh, combat operations as a journalist? Uh, I have done hazardous environments training um, several times. And I've also um, uh, provided, as a, as a manager, hazardous environment training to people in, I work with in Mexico. Um, so I'm familiar with the, I feel like I've been exposed to sort of um, a lot, the core prevailing wisdom of how journalists need to think about these things. That said, of course, it's very different on the ground. And, and there are good questions that can be asked about you know, what needs to change um, in the sort of curriculum of hazardous environment training. Um, in this particular case, I raised my hand um, many times <laughs> before I got to Libya. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, especially because I had Middle East experience in Arabic, um, you, you really want to be there. It's sort of a hunger, and uh, I think that's why you see um, some of the same personalities again and again in these places. And it's obviously an advantage to have the relevant experience, um, but uh, it's exciting, it's, it's exhilarating. And what I thought about Iraq, I think about Libya, which is that how privileged am I to be able to be witnessing the birth of a nation? You were also a bureau chief in Mexico mm -hmm. before. How do you compare the danger to journalists that you were in in Libya with the danger to journalists in Mexico? an interesting question, um, and actually that's why uh, we, for the first time last year, um, 
provided a security training course for um, our stringers in the sort of far-flung Mexican states, which are the most dangerous. I mean, if you're working in Mexico City, the dangers are um, associated with regular crime. But journalists are targeted um, for what they do in places like Juarez, Tamaulipas. Um, and I think it's much more insidious in, in a place like Mexico. I mean, these people, um, it's not something that is going to blow over, like, you know, the conflict may die down in Libya in a couple of months. Um, I don't think there's any reason to believe that um, the Mexican drug trade and all the violence associated with it um, is going to uh, subside substantially in the next year. Um, and that is something where you really just, I admire so much my colleagues who, you know, for years <coughs> work out of places like Juarez, have their families there, you know, expose themselves to those risks. But they do so because um, they believe in, in trying to hold the, the authorities accountable and, and telling the, the story to the world. Um, students, questions? If you, yes. Yeah, I'm Robert Cox, I'm a Mikuri student here. Just got a question. First of all, I just say I think it's great we've had regime change in uh, in Libya, but um, a former colleague of mine was working in Chad at the same time you were there, dealing with refugees coming across. You can maybe just speak a little bit more to your point about not sort of hearing the side of or the West cozying up to those who have common enemies to us, but also anything you think that the rebels are doing. Because he was getting stories from the refugees which weren't really either making the media just about the atrocities and rapes that were going on as the rebels pushed through to yeah. Tripoli. Atrocities on the part of the rebels. Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, this. there have been many reports of um, atrocities committed by um, the rebel fighters, uh, including torture, including there have been mass graves discovered. A lot of it has been um, allegedly targeting um, black Libyans, black Africans, um, people who are um, always described as, as mercenaries if, um, if they're not on their side. Um, I think that it, this is a big question. I mean, you know, the, the way that, the, that Gaddafi was killed and the way that Gaddafi's corpse was handled after he died, um, all of these things raise serious questions about the um, long-term stability and medium-term stability of Libya. I don't think that um, the, the current leadership has promised to disband militias and to move the country toward a regular army. Um, but in a country where, like I said, everybody is armed and everybody feels like they need to be armed still, I don't think that's going to be an easy transition. Thank you. Other students? Oh, yes, I'm sorry. My name is Sarah, and I'm an MPP student. And I was at a talk yesterday with one of the faculties here, Sarah Sewell, who's been working on mass atrocity response operations. One of the interesting things that came out in that discussion was that AFRICOM, to put it kindly, she said they were generally ineffectual and not ready to be a combat unit. And I was wondering if there's anything you could say to your experience at AFRICOM. And the, 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 the coordinated, I guess, the coordinated US military presence. Okay, well, Libya was a special case. I mean, there were no. AFRICOM soldiers there. There were no U.S. soldiers there. Um, I mean, there may be at some point. Um, I, I doubt it. Um, I, what made this conflict different than most of the conflicts where that you know have gotten the majority of media attention in the past couple of years is that there may have been some 
U.S. Special Forces on the ground, but there really wasn't a major military presence, and I think that that actually is an advantage for Libya. I think that that um, is something that, if all goes well, will help it um, heal more quickly, will help it sort of settle the um, issues that it has to settle um, in its own more culturally appropriate way. Um, I think that part of the problem, part of the reason that we saw so many problems in Iraq was that um, the U.S. military presence served to only inflame all of these existing ethnic, tribal, sectarian tensions. So, um, you know, whether or not Africa or other foreign military forces will go into Libya, I can't say. Any other students have a question? Okay, well, oh, I just want to ask you, did you know how long uh, Gaddafi stayed in Tripoli before he fled, and how, how did he flee? No. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. No, he would. He was seen in public in April, I believe, and then was not seen in public after that. And when I was there, he gave regular, if not nightly, um, audio addresses on television. There were audio tapes. I don't know whether they were live or not. Um, uh, and he would just sort of rant for an hour. Um, and they were hard to understand, even for um, Libyans. Uh, and uh, he obviously did not w reveal his location. He may have been in CERT at that point. There were many rumors that he was in Sabha, in southern Libya. Nobody knows. And he probably just kept keep moving around, just like Stan was saying. Maybe. Probably, but Maybe. we don't know. Nobody knows. What, one more question. How, what, What's going to happen to his collaborators, him, his sons and his head of security? And do you know that? Are they going to have a military tribune? Well, uh, his former prime minister is going to be extradited, Mahmoud um, al-Baghdadi. Um, he's going to be extradited to uh, Libya, and that will be one test. Where is he from? He was in Tunisia. Mm -hmm. um, that would be one test case as to whether the, the Libyan courts are capable of doing this at this stage and capable of doing it in a credible way. Um, of course, there's a lot of um, fears that um, it's too early. Um, the Saddam Hussein trial in Iraq, yeah, I think, was a fairly credible process. But the way that he was executed, I think, really fanned the flames of sectarian tension um, in, in, in a way that we wouldn't want to see happen in Libya. Um, and then there are several people who are still wanted by the ICC, but there's, like Saifel Islam, but he's still missing. Richard. Um, do your editors have a commitment to doing s a significant post-conflict coverage uh, by making sure that a deployed group of stringers is trying to figure out where the money's going, who's gaining power, et cetera? Have you talked about strategies for post-conflict? Yeah. We're or, actually, or more generally. Yeah. We're actually going to open a Libya a Tripoli Bureau um, for the first time. So that, to me, signals a significant commitment. Um, I mean, to be honest, one of the reasons why Reuters wants to do that, because we have a, a large financial clientele, the oil is important. And, but beyond that, that allows us actually to do, I think, what most of us care about more, which is um, really trying to provide a narrative about the transitional period. Um, and, and like you say, ask those questions. I mean, I, I really, um, can't see it being anything other than a very rocky road. Um, uh, hopefully it won't be as bad as some people fear. 
<coughs> Has the merger between Reuters and Thomson given your news gathering operation significant more resources on a global basis? It has. Um, we were acquired by Thompson uh, a couple of years ago, um, and it has been great for the news division um, because it pays for the kinds of very expensive things uh, that I do. Um, and they, uh, they publish uh, publications like Westlaw, and they have data service services that are, um, I think, quite lucrative. So it's, it's, a, good, it's a good arrangement for us. So, um, uh, first of all, just to, uh, I don't know if there's any possible uh, figures on this, but do we know uh, how many people have been uh, killed and maimed on both sides? I mean, what was really caused? And then the second question is, uh, do you have any gut feeling about Syria? I mean, there's some feeling that the killing of uh, Gaddafi probably would slow down uh, uh, young Assad from, or Bashir from uh, leaving uh, willingly. Uh, this, is this going to have any implications from what you hear? Of course, nobody's there, so. Yeah. But anyway, killed and uh, injured. I don't have those numbers. Um, Ballpark? Has anyone even counted it? I think that's happening right now. I mean, I think they're still finding mass graves, unfortunately, in the certain area, especially. Um, and any, any, uh, and I tended to totally disregard any numbers provided by the Gaddafi government. I mean, they literally, every day that I was there, they, they reported that there were multiple civilian casualties um, as a result of NATO airstrikes. Um, and I saw evidence of that happening twice. So, and one of them was a significant number. Um, but, you know, they just, and I don't know how we would do that retro retroactively on the Gaddafi side at this point. Um, and on Syria, you know, um, Bashar al-Assad is a very astute man, and I don't know that, I think that he sees that he's in a um, somewhat enviable position um, uh, in comparison to Gaddafi in terms of the interests and, and position um, that he's, <coughs> his position is much more secure because of Western interests in Syria and um, regional stability in the Levant. Um, so I don't know that Gaddafi's death, per se, would have a big effect on that. Um, the one takeaway, um, which I think is actually quite interesting, um, about Gaddafi versus other Arab tyrants, is that uh, <coughs> everybody always said, well, if Gaddafi had had a nuclear weapon, then they wouldn't have gone in and gotten him. Um, and I think that that's an interesting lesson for others in the region who may or may not be contemplating low weapon programs to think about. Um, Joe, an MPP student here. Um, did Canopy's government do anything to protect civilians from the airstrikes or from the rebel advance into the city? No, not that I know of. I mean, I don't know that there's much they, they could have done. Bombshell, there's their point. No, I, no. No, um, and actually, to the contrary, that they were repeatedly to go out and fight. I mean, there were there were soldiers also doing that, but um, you know, because they'd given guns and the volunteers, the volunteers were supposed to go out and fight rebels against the camp. The people who said that to you about the nuclear strategy believe that if Gaddafi had credibly been 
in pursuit that looked like he was going to get a nuclear weapon, that there would not have been an intervention long before this? I think that's what they thought. Or, I mean, at this stage, had he been in a place where he could have said, you know, that this is a credible option or I'm almost there, that this would have been a different situation. But that was the reason we did went into Iraq to prevent him from having nuclear. If he if Saddam Hussein suddenly had a nuclear bomb, he could have done anything. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, hi, I'm Josh. I'm in the one um, I was curious how during the conflict and uh, directly afterwards, you see um, <clears throat> people in your profession cope with the uh, intense, uh, unimaginable like stresses of either where they uh, find themselves currently or reflecting back on uh, what they went through and still be able to maintain like a professionalism how do how do we how do we cope with that? Is yeah, that how did you how did you see like in this situation, uh, journalists um, both during and, and afterwards like coping yeah. with where they were? Um, well, at the time, you're sort of I mean, when you're working, I think it's somewhat um, you don't need to ask those questions because you're so focused on getting the story out. Sometimes you're so focused on you know making sure that you don't get <coughs> shot. Um, really, the the I mean, as you say, the process begins when you leave the war zone. Um, different people cope in different ways, and it obviously affects different people in different ways. Um, I know there are a number of organizations that provide counseling services to their employees. Um, there are other people who prefer just to take a long vacation. I think most organizations are pretty understanding um, in terms of giving people time after something like that. Um, uh, like Alex said, or as he asked, you know, you, but there is this sort of bug that you get and you want to go back and you want to be part of history again. So sometimes it's a, a self-reinforcing problem. One of the things that I would like for you to talk about before we run out of time is what you would say to Kennedy School students now who are interested in journalism careers, who are here, who in some cases have some background in journalism, in some cases do not, but who are here getting a degree at the Kennedy School and want a career in journalism in the environment and the world we live in now. What do you say to them? I say that um, I don't think anything has changed in terms of what journalism can be at its best um, and what is needed um, in the world uh, from journalism at its best. And that is you know, telling the stories um, that are overlooked that is shedding light on um, the world's most vulnerable, and that is helping um, policymakers understand complex situations so they can make good decisions. And you know, obviously, the um, modalities um, of that um, are changing um, very dramatically, and um, perhaps the volume of people who are doing the kind of uh, reporting that I'm doing um, you know, has become smaller over the past five years. But there are tremendous opportunities and there's a tremendous need. Um, so I think that I would, I would only encourage that. Is there know. anything you would suggest that students here do while they're here to help make it more likely that they can launch a successful journalism career when they leave? You I said you studied yeah. Arabic. For yes, I, I, I would um, recommend uh, uh, choosing a strategic language. I would also recommend during your um, summer internship 
associating yourself with a news organization that you think you might have a future um, with. What was your path? My path actually was quite different. I, um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, well, I did start Arabic here. My summer internship, I went to work for an NGO in Afghanistan. Um, and I did some freelancing, actually, for National Journal when I was there. But um, it was a valuable experience for me because it was my first time in the Muslim world. It was my first time in a conflict zone. And so it was a very relevant experience. You might add, though, Missy, you've been dogged and persistent <laughs> in pursuing uh, positions in yeah. journalism, and I think even ended up covering the South Shore yeah, for a while for the Boston, Boston Globe, Globe yeah. and, and so willing to go and write uh, wherever, whether it's Libya or uh, exactly. or Pembroke. Uh, <laughs> this, uh, and I think there true. is something to that, uh, you know, mm -hmm. sticking with it. Mm -hmm. uh, and you've uh, you're probably too modest to say that, but you have really <laughs> stuck with it uh, throughout. Any other questions? Yes. Um, do you find that um, social media played a role in the conflict? Oh, uh, yeah. I should, I should have said this before. Uh, I think the Libya conflict was really the first YouTube war, um, if you want to call um, the uh, Egypt um, uprising the first Twitter revolution. I think that this was the first YouTube war. Um, uh, there was a lot that was um, seen and used as propaganda. Um, on both sides, um, in terms of scenes that pretty horrible scenes, usually you know mass graves, people being blindfolded and shot, you know people being um, interrogated by Gaddafi forces, um, and then um, and this really served to I think you know like um, coalesce uh, the rebel leadership and the sort of feeling on the rebel side when when actually for a long time they didn't think that they were going to win. Um, and so they've been quite savvy about that. Um, the problem in Libya, of course, was that um, only half the country had the internet um, for, the, for most of the conflict. You haven't talked about the tribal element in yeah. Libya and how, how much that played a part, both of the group that was loyal to Gaddafi yeah. to be so passionate about him, or how this may play out now in the reconstruction of Libya. How do you see that going? Yeah, well, I, Libya is, is a very tribal society, um, and uh, the Gaddafi tribe, Gaddafi's tribe, um, uh, clearly was um, very privileged and powerful. Um, Gaddafi did a great job. Uh, he was a very astute politician, and he did a great job of manipulating and co-opting the, the tribes at different moments, um, especially the Warfala tribe, which was the biggest tribe in the country. Um, I think it remains to be seen what the role of the tribes will be um, in post-Qaddafi Libya. I mean, this is one of a series of questions that I think is fascinating um, and that the NTC and then the country as a whole as they go through the constitutional drafting process, elections, um, are going to have to answer in terms of what is the role we want for religion, um, minorities, tribes, um, do we want a strong central central st state? Do we want it to be highly federalized? Um, you know, what sort of economy do we want? And you know, this is just one of these things that um, the country needs to work through. And the danger is, of course, if you have all these sort of um, residual conflicts that are occurring at the same time, it makes it much more difficult to do that. So, if I may, what is your ambition now 
<laughs> in terms of you want to stay at Reuters, you want to go to the Times, what's your... Um, for the moment, I'm uh, staying with Reuters and uh, probably be heading back to Pakistan and Afghanistan in a few months. Um, so we'll see. Any other questions? Missy, thank you. This was wonderful.